Good evening and hope you've had a blessed day, grace and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love those words because you will not find grace and peace coming from um, just Daniel or Leonard or an individual. But grace and peace comes from God our Father. And that's my heart's desire for you. Grace is not just the overlooking of sin. Grace is the divine empowerment to live as God designed us to live. And peace is not the absence of conflict. It is being one with Christ. It's a joy to be here with you again this evening. And I appreciate your prayers and preparation for these meetings. For the children, do you remember your homework assignment? From last evening, who called his wife a heifer? Does anyone know? Samson. Samson, you're right. Good job. Now, we all know Samson was a very strong man, right? But I think in making such a statement... He was a very brave man as well. <laughs> now, in today's language, one would wonder if his wife had a cow when she heard that. <laughs> okay, for tomorrow evening, children, here is your homework assignment. Where in the Bible do we read of a big man with who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Where in the Bible do we read of a big man who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot? Thank you for your involvement with that. Okay. Turning our thoughts to this evening's message, um, Wholesome Recreation. Several questions I have for you to consider there. I think one thing that has um, diminished or maybe been a hindrance in the testimony of Christian living is the concept that Christian um, Christendom, or to be a follower of Christ, is dull or boring um, or restrictive, and you're limited on what you can enjoy. There's this concept of negativity that is often, and I hope you don't have that, but I think often it's, it's prevalent that we have this concept if only I could do what I really wanted to do, then I'd be happy. Um, I've had thoughts like that. If only I could just do what I wanted to do, then I'd be happy. I, I would enjoy something. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3 to get the context here. One of the goals of this evening is... Um, to try to instill within our hearts that the Christian life is the most joyful and fulfilling and satisfying life one can live. And looking at some guidelines that Scripture gives to us in our walk of life. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we will just pick out two phrases here in verses 1 through 4. The first one is verse 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. This is talking about the last days when perilous times shall come. And then it says, the end of verse 4, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. We live in a highly polarized culture that is screaming for our attention. 
You can't even drive down the road without seeing billboards and lights and signs that try to grab our imagination and pull us in a direction. Sights, sounds, images, tastes, things, passions in glittering and alluring array um, to capture our attention, our pleasure. A verse that I think often best describes something I wrestle with in life is found in Luke chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. I invite you to turn there. This is talking about the seeds and on what soil they land. And we read in Luke 8, verses 14 and 15, that that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. I think that is probably the ground that I would struggle with the most as far as it relates to, the, to receiving the word. This um, tension of being sidetracked by what I think would be fulfilling, um, just even the daily cares, the involvement of life. I know y'all have come through kind of a rough week of maybe a little more intense scrutiny than normal, um, just the cares and pressures of life that can actually affect the way I receive the word. And that can happen by default. But often the pleasures and cares of this life can choke out God's word. Moses is an example in Hebrews chapter 11. We read that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy, and Scripture's honest about this, listen how it says, enjoy the pleasures of sin, but it's truthful about how long it lasts for a season. There is small enjoyment and pleasure in sin, but it's temporary and not satisfying. Moses chose to suffer affliction and that's probably how we often view the choice. Affliction or enjoyment, right? <laughs> affliction or enjoyment. And we naturally shy away from affliction. But I think we have the opportunity to live the most fulfilling life by following God. Think of the influence that the that man that the man Moses had on the nation of Israel. And as he followed God, think of the miracles that God did through him. The wonder of his rod becoming a snake, devouring the other rods, um, the ten plagues, seeing God lead them through the wilderness in a miraculous way, cloud of fire and pillar of um, smoke and the holiness of God, that was way beyond any of the pleasures of Egypt that he would have experienced, seeing the magnitude of God in that way. So again, I ask, is the Christian life a killer of pleasure or a barrier to fun? Has enjoyment been handed over to the world so that the very idea of pleasure is seen as contrary to spirituality. <clears throat> Can we experience pleasure without feeling like it's a break from the routine of being a Christian? How can we find the delights that our hearts yearn for without victimizing ourselves or damaging ourselves in the process? And then how do we choose that which is legitimate pleasure and reject that which is illegitimate. Young people especially, and we are not immune from this, so I include myself in this, are fed a steady diet of all that appeals to the eye and imagination with so little to nurture the conscience. They are being manipulated into the belief that appetite 
just the desire for something, is reason to consume anything. In other words, if I have a desire for it, I should have a right to it. And worse yet, new appetites are being created that leave them hungrier than before and under the illusion that those hungers could be met if one could only remove all restraint. And so often we think of the choice as either all pleasure as a curse or just unrestrained indulgence. Either all against or all for. And I'd like for us to try to correct that concept, should we have that. I'd like for us to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and let us read verses 1 through 11. And it's incredible to me that Solomon was able to do what he did. But we read it here. And let us learn from his experience rather than repeating his mistakes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what that till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I gat me men singers and women singers and the, del and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And consider this next phrase. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor." Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. What is Solomon trying to tell us here? He had it all, didn't he? Wouldn't we say he had it made? Whatever he wanted, he got. Now, you fill in the blank, you think about it for yourself. If you could have anything you want, everything you want, as much as you wanted, what would it be? What would you do? And then ultimately, would that satisfy? This phrase, under the sun, maybe I could step away from the mic here a little bit. Everything under the sun. Everything under the sun, he says, is vanity. In other words, this is a closed system. Nothing from outside comes in. Only under the sun. What did Jesus say, or what did David say in Psalms? That my glory, God says... 
is set above the heavens. It's outside of this under the sun system. It's up here. So in other words, the joy, the fulfillment that you and I can experience is, properly stated, out of this world. You will not find it within the context of under the sun or in the world system. So that ultimately means this world has nothing to offer that really fulfills the longings of our hearts in its deepest needs. Now, everything that God has created under the sun can be enjoyed in its rightful and good place and be fulfilling, but it comes because of this glory above the heavens and enters into our world. Under the sun is an existence outside of God where there is no input from outside. It's a closed system. Now, I'd like to give you three principles and then three applications to the principles in thinking of pleasure. And before I get there, I would just want to make this comment. Solomon had everything his heart could desire, but like a gambler who picks his own pockets, unrestrained pleasure has plundered its own lovers. It's never enough. It simply leaves a greater void of emptiness. The things we think that would bring us fulfillment only create a deeper hunger. So principle number one is found in Judges chapter 7. This is the account. Let's, let's just turn there and I'll try to get the specific verse. Verse 6. This is the account of Gideon. And God is dwindling his security in man. And God is setting the stage for him and him alone to overcome this battle. And we're down to the last division here. And the division is, Everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink. The number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were 300 men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. Now this principle here is maybe hidden a little, but let me state it to you like this. Any pleasure that refreshes you without diminishing you or distracting you or sidetracking you is a legitimate pleasure. Now here, the bowing upon the knees and drinking out of the creek made someone more vulnerable than the ones who picked it up with their hands and lapped it like a dog because they were in a more vigilant posture. In other words, you could drink like that and be aware of your surroundings. You were more alert rather than bowing the knee to just consume your own pleasure. Now, that particular principle reminds us that we need a purpose or goal to gauge against what is sidetracking us. There is a fundamental prerequisite for defining a legitimate pleasure in life. And that is to first establish the purpose of life itself. And we talked about that last night, but I'd just like to mention it again. Life must be defined first, then it becomes clear to discern between fulfillment and disappointment, fun and destruction. All pleasure is built upon why you and I exist in the first place. And again, you remember the Example of the race in India. If we don't understand the purpose, then we lose the race. And that's not satisfying. It's satisfying to know the purpose and to engage that purpose. It's ironic that Samson needed the eyes of a young lad to lead him. 
all because he had lost sight of God's purpose for his life. You see, Samson liked to flirt with pleasure. And that pleasure distracted him from his purpose and calling in life. God had a specific plan and purpose for Samson, and he was sidetracked with pleasure. The purpose of life, again, defines lifestyle. It defines the places we go, the friendships we embrace, the words we speak, the things we watch or look at, the books we read, the thoughts we entertained. All must be aligned with the purpose to which we are called by God. A practical illustration would be, um, I told Leonard last night that a smartphone does not make a wise man. <laughs> now, if a smartphone would make a wise man, then the source of wisdom would be found in a smartphone, right? But a wise man will know how to use a smartphone. Better stated, does the pleasure control you or do you control the pleasure? So again, we ask the question, what am I doing here? What is the purpose that I am about? And we gauge all our pleasurable and enjoy enjoyment activities against whether it sidetracks and diminishes from that goal. The second principle, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 17. Here we have David in the middle of battle, and he speaks a desire of his heart to have a drink from the well. If I can turn there, 2 Samuel 23, verse 17. He wanted a drink from a well in Bethlehem. And he did not request this, he just stated a desire for it. But the problem was the enemy held this um, well and was guarding it. Three of David's mighty men risked their lives without David knowing it. They went in, broke into that enemy fortress, got water for David. Think of the loyalty and the love of that action. And when David received that water, in verse 17, he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Let's back up to verse 16. They took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that were, went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. Here is the nugget, the principle I want to leave with you. Any pleasure that jeopardizes the sacred right of another is an illicit pleasure. If only David would have remembered that when he looked upon Bathsheba. He was taking the right that someone else had and violating that. The story is told of a, an eighth grade boy attending school, and he began, he began to come late, an hour late every day. The principal sent notes home with him. They'd come back signed with his parents' signature, supposedly, an hour late. They, applied, they tried discipline. He'd come back the next day an hour late. Nothing seemed to work. They expelled him for a couple days when he came back an hour late. And he decided, that's it. That's, that's crossing the line. So he called social services. And they got involved. And they went to this young man's house. And they opened the door, which was unlocked. And they walked in. And they discovered that two months prior, the parents had left. And this eighth grade boy was left with two younger siblings to take care of. And he was too ashamed to 
bring that verbally to their attention. So he was taking his two younger siblings every morning, getting them ready to go to nursery, their school. He would walk two miles, take them to where they, sh they should go, run back, and he could never make it back in time. Now, as we consider that story, we, we can raise our eyebrows and say, who would jeopardize the sacred right of another by abandoning their children like that? But I would have to be honest enough with you to say that this principle hits pretty close home for me. If you look deeper at the level of which it applies to me, there are children in my home that sometimes suffer because of the pleasure I have within maybe even my calling. Um, you can be a man of God and go everywhere preaching and neglect your family which we wouldn't say it this way, but it's, and I want to be careful how I say this, but what I'm trying to say is we can be so busy with our own world that we neglect our children, even in our very own homes. We may think because we're with them, that should be enough. But maybe we're not connecting with them. Maybe we're not giving to them the relationship that they need. That's how it can apply to me. Any pleasure that jeopardizes the sacred right of another is an illicit pleasure. Maybe I enjoy something that's good and right in and of itself, but it's depriving another of a proper relationship. Pray for me in that, that I can be the father and fulfill the callings God has placed on my life without jeopardizing the sacred right of another. Third principle, Proverbs 25, 16. Hast thou found honey? Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith and vomit it. Here's the principle. Any pleasure, however good, if not kept in balance, will distort reality or destroy appetite. There's a limit. Free abandonment will not satisfy. Have you found something you really enjoy doing? Enjoy it. Do it. But don't let it consume you and actually destroy your appetite for it. Have any of you ever overeaten something you really liked? And it is actually now you abhor that thing. <laughs> I hope you haven't to that extent. But that can happen. Eat so much as is sufficient for thee. Keep it in balance. Here are the three applications. All pleasure, number one, must be bought at a price. Everything you and I do... <coughs> we pay a price for. Here's the difference. True pleasure is paid before it is enjoyed. False pleasure is paid for after the enjoyment. Think of something you really wanted to do that wasn't right to do and you thought it would satisfy and you did that thing and afterward you were left with that sense of guilt and emptiness. I think you know what I'm talking about because that's sin. <laughs> that's the nature of sin. And all have sinned and come short. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, he saw something, he saw a desire, a joy that he wanted, and he paid the price for that joy through the cross before experiencing that joy. He paid for it first, then enjoyed it. It was a legitimate pleasure. Secondly, 
Pleasure is a means, it's not an end. Joy is the greater end. Joy is not just a happy emotional feeling. Joy is a restful, satisfied, contented um, position in Christ. It is the satisfaction of the deepest longings of our heart that is content. And we're not seeking for something to fill that void because Christ has filled that, and now we can actually enjoy the pleasures in their rightful position because we are rightfully positioned. Pleasure is a means, not an end. And if we pursue it as an end, we only lead ourselves to emptiness. Joy is the greater end. Thirdly, God is the source of all good pleasure. Psalm 1611, at thy right hand, I think it starts out, thou wilt show me the path of life. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The pleasures of God are fulfilling and they last. That fulfillment lasts. It's a wholesome, good feeling. We read last night in Revelations 4.11 that all things were created for God's pleasure. And in Psalm 36, verse 8, let me turn there to get it correctly. We read, thirty-six, eight. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. God has a river of pleasures that he wants you to enjoy. And it's within the context of his supply for you. God isn't out to um, hinder your life by saying, no, 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 no. You can't do this and this and this and this. He's saying, enjoy what I have given you in its proper context for your greatest fulfillment. But don't let that become God to you. Place God first. Then you can experience the pleasures that he has for you in their proper place and live life to its fullest. Let me give you just a little practical example of this. I talked to a a father who had a number of children, and he said, you know, you've heard it said before by someone who has a large family, I'm raising a ball team. Have you ever heard that? (laughs) I'm raising a ball team. And he said, I'm not raising a ball team. I'm raising a singing choir. (laughs) And I really like that. Now, They both were doing something pleasurable, but it was on a completely different pitch, pun intended. But you see how the very same thing that God had given to each of them was being used in a different way or viewed in a different way. And how we use what God has given to us will affect our level of fulfillment and joy in life. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath called him to be a soldier. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says that we should be temperate in all things. Let me give you an an example that has been beneficial to me. Do you remember the stories or the days not the days, but the stories of the days of the Pony Express. You familiar with the Pony Express? Does anyone know what the motto of the Pony Express was? They had a motto that they followed. Anyone remember? The mail must go through. That was their motto. The mail must go through. So imagine these Pony Express riders risking their lives. Think of Indian savages chasing them. It wasn't unusual for them to come upon a uh, supposedly, well, their stop. And the thing had been the horses captured, the men killed. They had to ride on to the next one. There wasn't a fresh mountain. Think of the weather that they had to endure The mail must go through. Now imagine that Pony Express rider 
riding along in the dusk of the evening, and he hears an Indian coming. <laughs> what do you think he's going to do? He's going to get out of there as fast as he can, right? In other words, it actually spurs him on. The mail must go through. Now, that seems to have been a little bit what happened when persecution faced the church of Christ. It was like it actually spurred the Christians on. The word must go through. God's message must go through. But here's what I think has happened. What would the scene be like if that Pony Express rider is riding through towns and cities and he's hot and sweaty and he sees the glittering signs of the spa, <laughs> the pools. Maybe he's just entering a long night and he's riding by Starbucks coffee. <laughs> Maybe he rides past the bakery that smells of freshly baked bread. And which do you think would be the most sidetracking to a Pony Express rider? An Indian after him or a pleasurable call to stop just a little? Do you get the idea? The mail must go through. Don't lose the motto. Don't lose the purpose for which you are here. Don't be sidetracked. Stay the course. Now, I'd like to just mention briefly here, let me read some noteworthy quotes before we're getting into specifically recreation. William Law said this, Christianity is not ours till we live by it, until it is the center of our thoughts, words, and actions, until it goes with us into every place sits uppermost on every occasion and forms and governs our hopes and fears, our cares and pleasures. This and this alone is Christianity, a universal holiness. And remember, holiness is being set apart unto. You are called to be a Pony Express writer, in other words, with a clear directive that mail must go through. You are set apart for this. A universal holiness in every part of life, a heavenly wisdom in all our actions, not conforming to the spirit and temper of the world, but turning all worldly enjoyments into means of holiness and devotion to God. We must alter our lives in order to alter our hearts, for it is impossible to live one way and pray another. He says further, when you have this intention to please God in all your actions as the happiest and best thing in the world, you will find in you as great an aversion to everything that is vain and impertinent in common life, whether of business or pleasure, as you now have to anything that is profane. You will be as fearful of living in any foolish way, either of spending your time or your fortune, as you are now fearful of neglecting the public worship. Now, who that lacks this general sincere intention can be reckoned a Christian? And yet, if it was among all those who profess to be Christians, it would change the face of the whole world. What he's saying is, if we would take Christianity seriously and live it out as it's meant to be lived out, the dynamic for Christ's light to shine in our world is dynamic. It's possible. Now, going just a little bit to recreation specifically. If you're like me, you enjoy good, wholesome competition. Um, I enjoy volleyball. Um, I enjoy playing games. And what makes a good game for me is tight competition. If one team is just blowing another one out of the water, that's not much fun. Um, but when it's really tight and you're both engaged and putting your hearts into it, that's 
a blast. So we need um, competition, but let's remember to use that in a constructive way. So here's what I want you to remember. With the word recreation, Excuse my writing there, um, but I hope you can see that. Recreation, the actual word recreation is recreation. Now, we probably state it most accurately, <laughs> recreation. And that's not health healthy. This is not wholesome. This is. Now, what's the difference between the two? Recreation means to recreate an interest in life or the purpose for which you are about. It is to encourage and build up my brother. Recreation does this. And in recreation, everyone's on the same level. Not that we're the same in ability and gifts, but that we respect and value one another on the same level. As Leonard said, we are accepted in Christ. We find security in that. We don't find that I'm rejected if I can't spike like someone else. That's not the level of our acceptance. We do our best, but that doesn't mean we're rejected if we can't do that. Recreation is to excel and prove who is the best. It's, a, um, it's to exalt personal ability. So you see a complete different um, motive here. Think of it like this. In our schools, what is the purpose of our schools? To teach, right? And for students to learn. Now, if you were to ask most students in school, as I would have said, what would you think is their most favorite thing in school to do? Recess? Um, field trips? Yeah, now we're talking. <laughs> that's what, if it would be up to me as a student, that's the pleasure. That's, now that, now we're talking something, right? Longer recess, shorter study. But the reason we have recess is for this very word, recreation. We need a break from the intense work sometimes. And as we step away from our work, we are refreshed at recess, reinvigorated, clear our minds a little. We come back to our school work renewed and enabled to do better. We um, did a Christmas puzzle at my wife's family for Christmas one year, and I discovered something fascinating. We had this thousand-piece puzzle, I think it was, that we all did together, and you could be laboring at that puzzle, it was just whoever wanted to, and you would get bogged down. After, say, 15, 20, 30 minutes, things would just kind of stop. You would be looking and trying, and it just wouldn't work. Someone would walk up, who had not been engaged, and they would say, right there, try that one. Boink, you fit right in. Or you leave and come back to it, and the pieces will start connecting again. We need a little break, a little recreation for fulfilling the main objective. Now, if we were to just have recess instead of school, wouldn't that defeat the purpose of school? But we have recess as a means to enhance, to recreate, to refocus, to enable us to get on with the main task. Um, 
That analogy to me has been helpful in thinking about life as you and I are meant to live it. The pleasures, the recesses that God gives to you, and that can be different for different people. Maybe for you it's taking a book, finding a quiet nook, just getting away. For others, maybe it's going on a hike. For others, it may be doing something more active and physical. Whatever trips your breaker, retrips your breaker, so to speak, that's fine. God has given that to you. But he hasn't given that to you to live for. He's given that to you to use in the bigger picture of what you're really here for. So be refreshed by that pleasure. Allow that to enable you to pursue God's plan for your life. Just briefly on what I would call organized sports, and maybe a better term would be professional sports, versus Christian recreation. Organized sports is competitive to the point that it's all about me. There's a high focus on, in professionalism, about individuals being top dog. It promotes only those that excels and isolates those who desire to play. In other words, since Daniel's not good enough, he doesn't get to play. He doesn't meet the qualifications. It isolates. It places us in the company of those who do not hold the same standard of application to Christianity. And in that setting, there's a gravitation to a lower standard. And what I want you to understand here is we're talking about a value system. It's a different value system. Organized sports versus Christian recreation. Organized sports idolizes heroes of man's accomplishments. And in such an environment, it's easy to violate Christian principles to achieve success. It creates an atmosphere that I must conquer my opponent. And again, we're not against competition. That's part of the pleasure of a game. Christian recreation, the values it holds, is everybody has equal opportunity to participate. And isn't that a blessing? You don't have to be the best player, but you can be on the team. I love to see when a when a gifted person um, instructs or sets someone not as good as themselves. That, to me, speaks of a value system. Secondly, everybody performs at their level without fear of ridicule. And you can see how this value system is a recreation about what we're really here about. It's a safe environment. Recreation, recreation is as much about others as it is about ourselves. That is Christian recreation. I'd like to read to you a story that illustrates this, I think, so well. And maybe you've heard it before. But I think it beautifully illustrates the difference between the value system of an organized sport, professional sport, versus Christian recreation. At a fundraising dinner for a school that serves children with, dis- with learning disabilities, the father of one of the students delivered a speech that would never be forgotten by all who attended. After extolling the school and its dedicated staff, he offered a question. And his question is a little hard to follow, so I'll try to simplify it for you after I read it. When not interfered with by outside influences, everything nature does is done with perfection. Yet my son Shay cannot learn things as other children do. He cannot understand things as other children do. Where is the natural order of things in my son? And what he was saying is, usually people are born normal. But what happens when they're not born normal? What's the order for them? Then he told, the father continued, I believe that when a child like Shay, who is mentally and physically disabled, 
comes into the world, an opportunity to realize true human nature presents itself, and it comes in the way other people treat that child. Then he told the following story. Shay and I had walked past a park where some boys Shay knew were playing baseball. Shay asked, do you think they'll let me play? I knew that most of the boys would not want someone like Shay on their team, but as a father, I also understood that if my son were allowed to play, it would give him a much needed sense of belonging and some confidence to be accepted by others in spite of his handicaps. I approached one of the boys on his behalf and asked, not expecting much, if Shay could play. The boy looked around for guidance and said, we're losing by six runs and the game is in the eighth inning. I guess he can be on our team and we'll try to put him into bat in the ninth inning. Shay struggled over to the team's bench and with a broad smile put on a team shirt. I watched with a small tear in my eye and warmth in my heart. The boys saw my joy at my son being accepted. In the bottom of the eighth inning, Shay's team scored a few runs but was still behind by three. In the top of the ninth, Shay put on a glove and played in the right field. Even though no hits came his way, he was obviously ecstatic just to be in the game and on the field, grinning from ear to ear as I waved to him from the stands. In the bottom of the ninth inning, Shay's team scored again. Now, with two outs and the bases loaded, the potential winning run was on base and Shay was scheduled to be the next bat. At, at bat. At this juncture, do they let Shay bat and give away their chance to win the game? Surprisingly, Shay was given the bat. Everyone knew that a hit was all but impossible because Shay didn't even know how to hold the bat properly, much less connect with the ball. However, as Shay stepped up to the plate, the pitcher, recognizing that the other team was putting winning aside for this moment in Shay's life, moved in a few steps to lob the ball in softly so Shay could at least make contact. The first pitch came in, and Shay swung clumsily and missed. The pitcher again took a few steps forward to toss the ball softly towards Shay. As the pitch came in, Shay swung at the ball and hit a slow ground ball right back to the pitcher. The game would now be over. The pitcher picked up the soft grounder and could have easily thrown the ball to the first baseman. Shay would have been out and that would have been the end of the game. Instead, the pitcher threw the ball right over the first baseman's head, out of reach of all teammates. Everyone from the stands and both teams started yelling, Shay, run to first. Run to first. Never in his life had Shay run that far, but he made it to first base. He scampered down the baseline, wide-eyed and startled. Everyone yelled, Run to second! Run to second! Catching his breath, Shay awkwardly ran towards second, gleaming and struggling to make it to the base. By the time Shay rounded towards second base, the right fielder had the ball. The, small, the smallest guy on their team, who now had his first chance to be the hero for his team, he could have thrown the ball to the second baseman for the tag, but he understood the pitcher's intentions, so he too intentionally threw the ball high and far over the third baseman's head. Shea ran toward third base deliriously as the runners ahead of him circled the bases toward home. All were screaming, Shea, 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 all the way Shea. Shea reached the third base because the opposing shortstop ran to help him by turning him in the direction of third base and shouted, run to third, run to third. As Shea rounded third, the boys from both teams, pardon me, and the spectators were on their feet, shouting, Shea, run home. Run home. Shea ran to home and stepped on the plate. 
and was cheered as the hero who hit the Grand Slam and won the game for his team. That day, said the father softly with tears now rolling down his face, the boys from both teams helped bring a, a piece of true love and humanity into the world. Shay didn't make it another summer. He died that winter. Having never forgotten being the hero and making me so happy and coming home and seeing his mother tearfully embrace the little hero of the day. Sometimes we get so caught up in the <clears throat> system of the world that we miss our purpose of being here. Maybe you're a shade. I want you to know that God is rooting for you. And we want to root for you too. As we consider the, the purpose of life, I want to close with this challenge. We read some of the saddest words last evening. I never knew you. But God wants us to experience something much better. He wants us to experience the sound of these words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. In those words will be locked up all the purpose for which God has made us. This goal must govern the pleasure of our lives to hear him say, well done. Well done. You did it. You made it. You stuck with the purpose for which I put you on earth for. You weren't sidetracked by these pleasures that entangled you. C.S. Lewis says this, how little people know who think holiness is dull. The Christian life is the most fulfilling, satisfying life. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. God has enabled us to experience the pleasures of this life in their fullness that actually rejuvenate and recreate for us a sense of returning to our purpose and accomplishing that purpose so that we can hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Just want to bless you and encourage you as you pursue God first and enjoy his pleasures in this life. Not pleasures and care that trip us up, but that rejuvenate us and actually invigorate us for the purpose for which we were created. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the principles you have given to us to be about our Father's business. And Lord, I just acknowledge in my life, I have allowed pleasures of sin that I thought would satisfy me to sidetrack me. I have lived in selfishness for personal enjoyment and not used um, the things you have entrusted to me to bless others or to be about my father's business. And Father, I just want to again this evening commit myself to you to rightfully enjoy the things that you have given to me and to us. I pray that our value system may reflect a glory that is above the heavens and that we could enjoy the things that you have entrusted to us in this life in their rightful place. May we actually use them to be of assistance about our purpose and reason for existence here. Bless these dear young people especially. God, guard and keep their hearts from being sidetracked.
from the purpose for which you have created them. May they experience a deeper and fuller fulfillment and pleasure in this life as they follow you with all their heart. May they be an encouragement to the world around them who see a people not bound by restrictions, but living in the freedom and the blessing of true pleasure, that joy that is satisfying and fulfilling, that leaves no guilt, that gives us a good night's rest and invigorates us for relating to one another. Help us, God, to be an encouragement and blessing to each other in our recreation, and may we together learn in your school to be about our Father's business. We commit our evening and ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.